Welcome back to Bible Time. We're in 1 Thessalonians again in chapter 4. We're excited to be here. We're kind of entering another phase of study here in the book as um, the the whole um, direction of the book of Thessalonians here is going to shift here in verse 13. And Paul's going to change gears. He's going to go into um, another whole area of discussion, another whole area of teaching. And that is going to deal with um, all kinds of matters, tribulation, um, the catching away of the church, all kinds of things here, death, um, the wrath of God, the end times for individuals, end times for the saved, end times for the world, end times for the church. We're going to be looking at that today. We're starting this part of the study in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. The context that we've been through is all very important to get a good understanding of what Paul has to say here. God doesn't waste any words. This is not Paul's letter to the church of Thessalonica. This is God's letter to the church of Thessalonica that he wrote through Paul. And therefore, Paul's letter only in the sense that as he's the messenger, the conduit for which through which God spoke his words. And we can prove that again um, as we've looked so many times at that same verse, um, which is 13 of chapter 2. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. In our text here in verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, but I would not not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would illuminate your text, illuminate your word. I pray, Lord God, that we would be able to preach this in power and anointing and in truth, Lord God, and I pray that you would minister to our hearts. Lord, please give me the utterance and the unction, Lord God, to communicate this and give us ears to hear, Father, and eyes to see and hearts to obey your word in Jesus holy name amen so here in first Thessalonians um, 4:13 again we're beginning a section of about 17 verses dealing with death Christ's coming the rapture and hinting at the tribulation we'll have the end times for in, for the individual which is death of an individual person we'll look at the end times of the saved when they are resurrected bodily from this earth we'll look at the end times for the church caught up to meet the Lord in the air we'll look at the end times for the world described as the wrath of of God. In our context here in chapter 3 and verse 2, he says that he sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. And the reason that he sent Timothy, you'll remember the message, this man, Timothy. And then the messages that followed that, you can look them up by reference there on Sermon Audio and um, go through them. If you need to review those or if you miss those, I encourage you to look at them, especially verse verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, as those are kind of a hint and a lead-in to the topic that we're um, diving into with 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Indeed, actually, whenever we did 1 Thessalonians 3.4, I actually alluded to that in that message, and I told you all, this is the direction that we're going, and this is just a sample platter. This is just a, a an appetizer just to get your taste buds um, thinking about the end times because Paul's about to dive into the end times and he'll deal with it quite a lot as we wrap up first Thessalonians and then he deals with it quite a lot in second Thessalonians so Lord being our helper we're going to have a whole lot about the end times in the next coming months so here in chapter 3 and verse 3 he says that no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto his purpose for sending Timothy was to establish you so that you wouldn't be moved. I want you to stand up right here. Stand up, young man, and come over here. I want this young man to come over here, if you will. Quickly, quickly stand right here. Here's a young man, and he is going to try and move you by afflicting you. You try and stand in this evil day, and you try and move him. Go for it. He moved you. You're not supposed to be moved. Now, he's trying not to be moved, but he's being moved even though he's trying not to be moved. Try again. All right, this time he was better prepared and he didn't move anywhere near as far or as quickly. Let's try one more time, quickly, 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 quickly. Try one more time. Do not let him move you. 
That's even better. And now we can see, have a seat, sit down. Um, and actually, young, um, you there that you were trying to move the second young man, you stand over here and try and move me. Now, for those of you that can't see and can only hear, the young man that's going to try to move me is how old? How old? Four and a half years old. Try and move me. Come on, push. Let's go. Push. Move me. Try and move me. Try and push me. Push as hard as you can. And he can't push me. He, he's trying just as hard, but he can't push me. The younger guy, how old are you? Nine. The nine-year-old was pushed by the four-and-a-half-year-old. Now, the four-and-a-half-year-old in this case is pretty stout four-and-a-half-year-old, but he was able to push that nine-year-old some. But each time the nine-year-old was pushed, he realized that he was losing ground, and he took measures to ensure that he wouldn't get pushed so hard next time. And he leaned harder into it, and he stood his ground better each time. And then whenever it came to my turn, the, the little guy couldn't move me at all. No surprise. But this is what God was sending Timothy to the church at Thessalonica to do, to establish them so that they would not be moved by afflictions. Paul's saying, get ready. You are going to face afflictions. There are going to be things that happen that you wish didn't happen. There are going to be tribulations in this life. Verse four of chapter three says, for verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation. Jesus Christ said in the world, ye shall have tribulation. You are going to have tribulation. It's coming. You need to be established. You need to be settled. You need to be settled in your faith so that no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. When we studied that tribulation, we focused on the reality that the tribulation for the church is now. People argue, is the church going to go through the tribulation. And that's actually a stupid question. The, you say, oh, there are no stupid questions. That's a stupid statement made by stupid people. That's mean. You shouldn't talk that way. Well, I'm sorry, but it's true. And sometimes the truth hurts. And by the way, that's the only way to fix stupid. They say you can't fix stupid, but there is one way. You tell stupid it's stupid and show it what isn't stupid. And that helps stupid stop being stupid. So if that's if that's the main question, if that's what your life is centered around, is the church going through the tribulation? I've got news for you. That's a stupid question. The church is in tribulation. I'm not preaching kingdom now um, heresy. I'm not preaching that trash. It's a, it's a lie out of hell that, that we're living in the millennial age. All that kind of garbage, okay? I know there's other Christians that preach it that might love the Lord, but their doctrine's trash. I love them, and I love them in the Lord, but their doctrine's trash. Listen to me. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how sweet you are. I don't care how well you can sing. If you come to church wearing dirty diapers and with your hair soaked in grease, out of the back of a restaurant and you've got flies buzzing around your head and you say, listen, I'm a great person and I love you all and I want to teach your Sunday school class. I'm going to say, sorry, go clean up the garbage first. And if you came and I don't eat, I don't have a church that I lead. I am part of a church and I serve in that church, but to whatever capacity I have in it, I wouldn't have anything to do with somebody coming in and teaching kingdom now theology. And I don't believe my pastor would either. It's trash. It's garbage. I love you, but take the trash out and then come back and we'll have something that we can work with. You got to get that trash out of here. Now, having said that, the church is going through its tribulation right now. We are appointed to affliction. We are suffering tribulation. Jesus said in the world, ye shall suffer tribulation. It says in the Bible that you are that yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution and uh, not to beat a dead horse or to re-preach the other message. But listen to me, if you're not persecuted, you're not living godly. Now, that doesn't mean you'll be persecuted every minute of every day, but there will be a pattern of persecution and affliction and tribulation in the life of true believers, no matter where they live. 
People that say, well, we live in America, so there's not persecution here, are confessing that they are not living godly in Christ Jesus. They're putting up a billboard and saying, I am a backslider. I am half reprobate, if not all the way reprobate. They're saying, I am a Laodicean, lukewarm Christian that God is going to spew out of his mouth. And so that whole argument can just be wadded up and thrown in the trash because people who never have persecution are are not godly and are not living godly. End of story. God said, shall, yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Do you believe whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Then you ought to believe that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It is as non-optional as your salvation is assured that you will go through this life to say that you'll go through this life without persecution and live godly in Christ Jesus is as non-optional as your salvation is assured. <coughs> now, let's get into this verse here. Um, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Ignorant is not sin. Being ignorant is not sin. It's actually normal. You start out pretty ignorant. When you're born, you come into the world, as the Bible says, naked came I into the world, and you come into the world naked and you don't even know it. You don't even know about clothes. You don't know how to feed yourself. You don't know how to do anything. Ignorant can be fixed. They say you can't fix stupid, but ignorant can be fixed. All ignorant needs is teaching. All ignorant me needs is instruction. Now, the world cherishes knowledge, but has little or no use for wisdom. Go to Ecclesiastes 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 14. The world loves knowledge. The world puts a high premium price on knowledge, but has little to no use for wisdom. They just as soon have the knowledge and skip the wisdom. And that's not how God works. God would rather you have the wisdom than the knowledge. God would rather you have the understanding than the knowledge. And once God works wisdom and understanding in your heart, then he begins to trust you with knowledge. This was Adam's problem in the Garden of Eden. Adam had the opportunity to learn wisdom and understanding from God, but he took the shortcut and he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when he had neither the wisdom nor the understanding to handle the knowledge. And it brought death to the whole world. It was not his time yet to know those things. People say, why did God even put that tree in the garden? Because Adam was appointed to someday have knowledge. But he was a brand newborn babe, even though he was fully formed man, he was brand new. And God said, no, you've got to wait on me. I'm going to teach you wisdom and understanding. And Adam and his wife said, whatever, God, we're going to go straight for the knowledge. And it cost this world everything. <coughs> now, Ecclesiastes nine verse 14 tells a little story. There was a little city and few men within it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no man remembered that same poor why that poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. That is the truth today. Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's words are not heard. Go to Proverbs chapter one and verse two to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice and judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. Did you see how far down the list knowledge was? Way down there. Let's count. He says to know wisdom. That's one. And instruction, two. To perceive the words of understanding, three. To receive the instruction of wisdom, four. Justice, five. Judgment, six. Equity, seven. To give subtlety to the simple, eight. To the young man, knowledge and discretion, nine and ten. And that knowledge isn't given till number nine, and it isn't given without discretion. See, knowledge is actually 
actually dangerous. People say knowledge is power. That's not actually true. Knowledge is dangerous. That's true. You say, no, 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 no. Knowledge is not dangerous. Knowledge is where safety is. People just need better educated. Okay, let's teach every country in the world how to make nuclear bombs. The knowledge is going to make the world a safer place. You say, that's not fair. Well, I say that you know not how to reason. Listen, knowledge, if knowledge makes people safe, how come we're not the safest we've ever been? Because there has been an increase in knowledge, just like the Bible said there would be. Knowledge is increased in our day, just like the Bible said. And yet safety is further out of reach today than it has ever been. In fact, we find that our knowledge has actually increased destruction. Our knowledge has increased temptation. Our knowledge has increased rebellion. Our knowledge has increased disease. Well, we hold up knowledge and think it's so wonderful, our knowledge has led to an increase in disease because our knowledge has failed to be coupled with discretion and has been placed above wisdom, justice, judgment, equity, etc. Back in the days whenever knowledge was increasing, most of the knowledge that was gained was gained because of a biblical perspective that even lost people had been given in their education and a fear of God that prevailed on the nations. And that fear of God led to incredible um, advances in knowledge. But now because of our knowledge, we are puffed up and our knowledge is bringing us down. The pride, pride, the Bible says, goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Knowledge puffeth up, the Bible says. And that knowledge that is gained without wisdom and instruction is dangerous and hurts you. Knowledge is needed, but not until wisdom and understanding and justice and judgment and equity and subtlety to the simple have been given. Now, this is God's way. God's ways are not man's ways. Man always approaches everything from the exact opposite way that God does. God is perfect and man is perfectly imperfect. God is everything that man is not and man is everything that God is not. And it's such a travesty that man is in this state, but it is a truth nevertheless. So here we have this, that God has this throughout the word of God that we are to have. He wants us to have knowledge, but he wants us to have the wisdom and understanding, the subtlety and the judgment, justice and equity to handle the knowledge. So he says to us in the new Testament that he would have us to be simple concerning evil, wise concerning good. The world doesn't think that you really know anything if you're a virgin. The world doesn't think that you really know anything if you possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. The world doesn't think you really don't, the world thinks you don't really know anything if you don't know all the perverted things out there and you don't know how to describe wicked acts and you're shocked or surprised when you see something vile that the world's used to. The world thinks that you're ignorant and that you don't really know anything. God says, be simple concerning evil, wise concerning good. Don't waste your heart and your life learning about sin. Learn only what God teaches you about sin as you live this life in your endeavors to reach the lost and help the, the sinners to become saved through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But stay out of the junk and the filth of this world. The Bible tells us in malice be children, howbeit in understanding be men. In understanding, grow up. God wants you to grow up. God wants you to be wise. Look at verse 6. Or verse 5 of Proverbs 1, a wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. Instead of trying to pump knowledge into fools, we need to have people trained in wisdom that then naturally increase in learning. If you have wisdom, your learning increases automatically. Teaching people learning and knowledge without wisdom is like shooting up an athlete on steroids to try and get them stronger. What they need to do, they will increase, but it will come with bad side effects. A lot of really bad side effects, and a lot of them are going to die in the process, running those dangerous growth hormones and steroids that people are pumping in their bodies to try and get bulging muscles and run faster and hit a ball farther so it goes over the fence. What vanity. (coughs) God wants you to be wise. He says here, a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. 
You know, this has been proven over and over again throughout the entire earth. There's a man named, um, I won't even tell you his name yet. There was a man who as a young boy, he couldn't get his school right. And his teacher said, this guy is a dunce. He's an idiot. He's never going to get it. He's not figuring out his math. And they said he'll never amount to anything. And they kicked him out. And he went out in the world and he learned wisdom and understanding in some things. He came short in some other areas, some, uh, some eternal areas that will cost him eternal life. But this man got some wisdom and some understanding. And guess what happened? He ended up attending to wise counsels. His name is Albert Einstein. The, another one was the guy that invented the light bulb. Who's his name? Thomas Edison. He's a school dropout. In fact, a lot of our major inventions that have advanced the knowledge of our day have come from dropouts of school who then learned wisdom. They learned how to work hard. They learned how to try and try and try again. They learned how to figure things out themselves. And instead of learning what other people said, they learned how to figure it out themselves and they made great advances. Now there, there is a time they also would use other people's writings. You can take this to extreme and say that you don't need any, um, any knowledge at all. That's not true either. So you got to keep this thing balanced. Again, knowledge is there in this list. It just doesn't come before wisdom. It doesn't come before understanding. So here in Proverbs 6, he says, To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. This is something God wants you to attain to. This Bible is full of dark sayings. People say, I can't understand that Bible. It's in that old English. That's not the problem. The problem is it's the words of the wise and their dark sayings, and you are either a fool or ignorant if you can't understand the Bible. Again, ignorance not a sin. God God will fix it if you will let him, if you will be taught, if you're willing to be taught by God. The reality is that the natural man cannot receive the things of God. They are foolishness unto him, the Bible says, so that he cannot discern them. And if you don't understand the Bible, and that's because you do not want to understand the Bible, and you do not want to repent, and you do not want to turn to God, then the Bible labels you as a fool. But if you want to know God, and you want want to know the word of God and you struggle to understand the Bible, ask and it shall be given to you. The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given him. Wisdom is so much more important than knowledge, but our world has thrown out wisdom and desires only knowledge. Verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. How do you get the fear of the Lord? Wisdom and instruction. Wisdom and instruction teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter two, my son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee. Now this has a physical parenting application and all through this it does. When it talks about honor thy father and thy mother, it's talking about your literal father and mother. But there is a spiritual application that transcends and supersedes and goes beyond and overpasses the physical application. The father being God and the mother in typology should be a Bible believing Christ following body of believers who are getting the gospel into all the world known by God as a church. We're not talking about the any kind of organization that claims to be the church, but rather the living church of Jesus Christ, an organism, not an organization. Proverbs chapter two, my son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear into wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God for the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding he layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous he is a buckler to them that walk uprightly he keepeth the paths of judgment and preserveth the way of his saints then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity yea and every yea every good path when wisdom entereth into thine heart and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul discretion shall 
shall preserve thee. Understanding shall keep thee to deliver thee from the way of the evil man. There's so much here. We could preach it and use up all of our time. We've got to keep going, though. And so here we've seen all these. Hopefully you're making application to these verses as we've already done. As I read them, you can read Proverbs 2 and think about what has just been taught from the word of God and make the applications here in verse 12 to deliver thee from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaketh forward things. Now, this has a direct application in your physical life to people walking up and down the street. But there's a man of sin who will be revealed. We're about to get into end times in Thessalonians. We're at the door, at the threshold of jumping into this huge topic. And as we do that here in Proverbs 2, you can make an end times application. This wicked man can this, you can make a church age application. The wicked man has the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The wicked woman, the strange woman in verse 16 is that Jezebel that's warned about in the letters to the churches. So you have these two, the man that speaketh forward things who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked whose ways are crooked and they froward in their paths talking about the Pope and all of his crowd in the church age and then old Jezebel which is mixed in with that Catholic church's will to deliver thee from the strange woman but listen to me Jezebel doesn't limit her whoredoms to the Catholic church that's just her home base she branches out everywhere she can get and we've got Athaliah's running around the offspring of Ahab the wicked man and Jezebel the harlot church and these Athaliah's are running around running every denomination on the face of the earth right now mixed in with every denomination here's the the strange woman even from the stranger which flattereth with her words which forsaketh the guide of her youth and forgetteth the covenant of her god for her house inclineth unto death and her paths unto the dead none that go into her return again neither take they hold of the paths of life that thou mayest walk in the way of good ways of good in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous notice there's one way for all good men i messed it up so i had to take time and i noticed it there because i messed it up isn't god good Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. It says that thou mayest walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright shall dwell in the land and the perfect shall remain in it, but the wicked shall be cut off from the earth and the transgressors shall be rooted out of it. We're trying to hurry here. The end times applications here um, would be the Antichrist himself. You have the harlot church, the great whore would be that wicked woman. (coughs) If you're going to be kept from these things, you need to not be ignorant. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. But you need to be not ignorant in the things of God. You need to be versed and wise and understanding in the things of God and in the word of God. Remember, it's not a sin to be ignorant. It's normal to be ignorant. But it is a sin to stay ignorant of God's truth when God makes it available. It is a sin whenever God confronts you with truth to say, my denomination doesn't teach that. I'm going to ignore it and look the other way. It is a sin whenever you say, well, I just have my own way of doing things. Whenever somebody hands you a gospel of John and you won't even read it to see what God says. You're content to go on in your ignorance. They say ignorance is bliss. What a lie. What a lie. Get wisdom and get understanding. I knew a young man growing up who had that attitude. It was ignorance is bliss. Every time the preacher would start preaching hard, he would glaze over. You could watch his eyes just glass over, and he would just start thinking about, I don't know what, a giant ball of spaghetti noodles rolling down a hill. It didn't matter if it was silliness, foolish, just something other than getting knowledge, getting wisdom, getting understanding from the word of God. And he grew up to be an infidel who names the name of Christ, plasters crosses all over the thing, over the place, tells people to come and get saved and believe in Jesus. And why don't you come listen to rock and roll and um, do whatever else you want to do in sin while we do it? Because we've got Jesus, baby. Listen, ignorance is sin if you choose to stay in it. Ignorance is normal, but God has given you a way to get out of ignorance through his word. And he says in his word, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. I would not have you to be ignorant. Now there in this verse, he's going to dive into a specific area and we've got to hurry so that we have time to cover this area. Well, so here he says, I would not have you to be ignorant brethren concerning them, which are asleep. Now the Bible, 
Bible defines the Bible. We're going to jump into this here real quick. He says, concerning them which are asleep. What does he mean by that? Does he mean the little kid taking a nap? We're going to let the Bible define the Bible. We're going to look at a few verses. Um, go to Luke chapter 8 and 1 Thessalonians 4. In fact, we'll probably start with 1 Thessalonians. Um, it's actually 5, I think. 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. I had the wrong reference written down. 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 says, For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Um, so there he uses sleep to talk about a spiritual sleep. This shows us that there is a spiritual and a physical sleep in the Bible. The Lord said, the Bible says in Psalms, the Lord giveth his beloved sleep. Is that talking about spiritual sleep, physical sleep? Is it talking about death? What's it talking about? In the context, it's talk, it says, um, not to stay up late and rise up early and eat the bread of sorrows for so the Lord giveth his beloved sleep. It's talking about taking a a physical literal rest. (coughs) And of course there's spiritual applications to it, but the interpretation is physical rest in Psalms. In that one instance here in first Thessalonians four, it's a spiritual application and that's understood by the context. Go to Luke chapter eight and let's look at another use of sleep here in the book of Luke. If I can find it, I jumped all the way to the Old Testament. All right, Luke chapter 8 and verse 52. And it says, And all wept and bewailed her. Who? Well, this maiden here. Um... It says that, verse 49, while Jesus was speaking to this other person, while he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden, and all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead but sleepeth. Now here we could be confused for a moment. Did Jesus walk in on a girl that had fallen asleep into a state of a coma and the people thought she was dead, but she really wasn't dead? The Bible will define itself. It says, and they laughed him to scorn knowing that she was dead. They knew she was dead. But again, we could doubt their testimony. We could say those people might not have been able to recognize a coma. They might have thought that she was still, um, they might have thought she was dead, but maybe she really wasn't. It says down here, and he put them all out and took her by the hand and called saying, maid arise. And her spirit came again. So there the Bible tells us that her spirit had left her body, which is death. She was dead. Now, why did Jesus say she's not dead, but sleepeth? Well, we'll get to a verse later that says, He that believeth on me shall never perish. The Bible says, He that believeth in Christ shall never taste death. So here, death, as it is a literal death in the Bible, is sometimes referred to as sleeping. Sometimes it's referred to as going to sleep. And that is in in the inference of the promise of Christ that they that believe in him shall never taste death. So this little maid was then by Christ's testimony here, a very apparently a saved little girl. She believed in Jesus Christ and there she was sick in her house. Pay close attention here. And that little girl got sicker and sicker and sicker and her family got worried and her daddy went running to find Jesus. And while Jesus was still coming and he got delayed there, if you remember with the woman who had an issue of blood and Jesus stopped on his way and that dad's Um, anxiety must have been great. His anguish must have been deep. And then they came and told him, your daughter is dead. Trouble not the master and his heart broke at that saying. But Jesus said, fear not, believe only and she shall be made whole. Jesus came in and said, she is not dead, but sleepeth. Jesus, as he often did, would, and you have to let Jesus say when he's doing this, you don't have the right to make a private interpretation, but Jesus would often make a spiritual truth with a physical analogy as he did with destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it again. And there in that same passage, it tells us, but he spake not of the temple they were looking at, but the temple of his body. 
It always tells you. The Bible always tells you when it's being spiritual, when it's being um, allegorical, and when it's being literal. You're not. You don't have any right to just say, "Oh, that's spiritual. That's allegorical," unless the Bible tells you so. You have no right, sir, to reinterpret the Word of God. There is no private interpretation of the Scripture. So here he says, "The maid is not dead, but sleepeth." But then he said, "Maid, arise." And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway. And he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished. But he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Go quickly to John chapter eleven. Here we have the story of Lazarus and Lazarus, the friend of Jesus is sick. And they sent to Jesus and said, he um, whom thou lovest is sick. And when Jesus heard it, he tarried in the same place. The Bible says he abode two days still. Then it says, after that, he saith to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. And down here, he says in verse 11, um, these things said he, and after that, he saith unto them, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Well, if he sleepeth, he shall do well. Look at what his disciples said. Verse 12, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. That's a good thing. A sick person needs to sleep. How be it, the Bible says, how be it Jesus spake of his death. So again, the Bible defines its own terms. And the Bible explains to you whether Jesus really meant he was in a coma or really meant he was sleeping or if he was really dead as a doornail. And he was dead as the proverbial doornail. Dead, 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 deader, dead, can't get any more dead, not coming back from the dead by any power other than the supernatural power of Almighty God. He was dead. Jesus said through the word of God here that Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. So it's normal to misunderstand the Bible. It's normal to misunderstand Jesus. We all do it. Again, ignorance is not a sin unless you choose to remain ignorant when God offers you light. And here God is offering you light. So it says in verse 14, then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. That time Jesus just out and said it, Lazarus is dead. Now the rest of the story there is beautiful. Jesus um, would raise him from the dead. We're going to look at verse 25 later. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Hallelujah. And look at verse 26. He says, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Verse 26, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? I believe it. First Corinthians 1130 deals with sleep again as a death. First Corinthians 1130 uh, there. He's talking about the communion service. There's no mass in the Bible. The communion service in first Corinthians 1130, he says, but a let, let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body for this cause. Many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned of the world. Somebody says, oh, he's talking about they're taking naps. He's talking about spiritual sleep. No, he says here, they're chastened of the Lord. God's chastening, God's judgment does not involve putting people to sleep that God has called to be awake. This is talking about death and the Bible again, defining the Bible. So here in our text, he says, I would not have you to be, but I would not have you to be to ignorant brethren concerning them, which are asleep. How many of you here today know somebody that has died? That was a Christian. God's saying here in the word through, through the word of God to you, God's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about those people who are dead, who are asleep. (coughs) And look what he says next, that ye sorrow not. Go to Ezekiel, that ye sorrow not, comma. A lot of times we read this wrong. We say that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope as if it's all one sentence and it's not. It's, well, it is part of one sentence, but there's two phrases. That ye sorrow not is 
here its own phrase, its own standalone phrase. And we get to Ezekiel 24, and we're going to find a very difficult passage here, a very difficult trial that Ezekiel went through in chapter 24 and in verse 15. Also, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Yet neither shalt thou mourn nor weep, neither shall thy tears run down. Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead. Bind the tire of thine head upon thee and put on thy shoes upon thy feet and cover not thy lips and eat not the bread of men. So I spake unto the people in the morning and at evening my wife died. And I did in the morning as I was commanded. And the people said unto me, Wilt thou not tell us what these things are to us that thou doest so? So here in this case, if you read the context, God was using this to teach the judgment of God to Israel. But in the midst of that, God asked Ezekiel to give up his wife. And he told Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife away with a stroke. Now, did he mean what we call in medical terms a stroke? Or did he mean in biblical terms as if the one swing of a sword in one moment, in one fell swoop, like an axe that takes down a tree with one hit. And I believe, obviously from the context, it's used in the biblical sense, not in the medical modern sense. So here he's saying, I'm going to take your wife away with one hit. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be fast. It's going to come when nobody expected it. Wham! Here she goes. One minute she's alive and standing like a tree in the forest, and the next minute she's laying on the ground. One minute she's alive and vivacious. The next minute she is being prepared for her burial. And he says, Ezekiel, I don't want you to mourn. I don't want you to cry. I don't want you to weep. I don't want you to put on mourning attire. I want you to make no mourning for the dead. And Ezekiel said that he did that. He obeyed God. He spake in the morning. That means he preached in the morning. And he says in the evening, his wife died. He preached and then his wife died. And what did he do the next day? He preached again and he kept on preaching. And God said, Ezekiel, this is what I want you to do. Now, this doesn't seem to make sense. And it really blew everybody's minds there in that place. Grief is normal. Grief and sorrow are normal. This is what God has God has put human affection within mankind. Thank God that he does. As wicked as man is, as cruel as man is, it would be so much the worse if there wasn't at least some what they call milk of human kindness in this world. So there's affection and grief is normal. But we're not normal people. We're called to be peculiar people. We're a called out people. We're a separated people. Separated unto God. Separated unto his work. And God has a purpose. And God has a plan. In Corinthians, the Bible says that they that are married should be as though they are not. Why? Because we're running out of time. We have work to do. We have a battle that we're involved in. How many of you think that would be really hard for Ezekiel? (coughs) I think that'd be really hard. His wife just up and died. And you know what? God let it happen to make a point in his preaching. What on earth? How many preachers would volunteer for God to kill their wives to make their preaching more powerful? That's not what most people want. And if it is, you probably have a sick mind. Only God can come up with something like that and it'd be right. But God did, and it was. And he asked Ezekiel not to mourn. We've got to hurry. Go to 2 Samuel 12. I'm going to look at another crazy example of otherworldly supernatural response to death here in 2 Samuel 12. In this case, it's judgment again. But instead of preaching and God using it to enhance the power of a message of a preacher, this time the man who's going to lose his beloved one is the sinner who is being chastened by God. Here in 2 Samuel 12, David has committed adultery with another man's wife and caused her husband to be put to death so that he could marry her when he found out she was pregnant and cover up his sin so that people wouldn't know how wicked he had been. And here in 2 Samuel 
12 and verse 15, Nathan departed unto his house after telling him that the child that is born unto thee shall surely die. The Bible says, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died for seven days. David fasted and prayed, but after that, the child died and the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead for they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. No big funeral. No big fuss. He washed. He anointed his head. He cleaned up and he went into the house of God and worshiped. Then he came to his own house and when he required, they set bread before him and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, Well, the child was yet alive. I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in under her and lay with her, and she bare a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. So David got up, anointed his head, went into the house of God, worshipped, went home, ate dinner, got with his wife. They had another baby, and he went on with life. Isn't that amazing? Those people, his servants, they, their minds were blown. This brings us to the last part of our verse today. Um, even as others which have no hope. So he says, I would, but I would not that you have, I would, I'm sorry, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. He's telling them, listen to me. You don't need to sorrow when your loved ones die. When your loved ones die, you don't need to weep and howl and moan and put on black and sackcloth and ashes and wallow in the dust and throw it in the air and cry aloud and cut yourselves with knives. He said, listen, we don't sorrow as others who have no hope. He says that ye sorrow not, even as others that have no hope. Now this world would say, you're crazy. You must not love that person. But God's saying, listen, you've got hope. How could Ezekiel keep going when his wife died? He had hope. That's how. How could David keep going when his son died? He had hope. The whole world thought that Ezekiel was crazy. The whole world thought David was crazy, but he had hope. He wasn't like the others that have no hope. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be there some in the coming verses, but in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51... Some of the most powerful verses about death in the Bible. He's, Paul the Apostle, speaking by inspiration of the Holy Ghost, says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means die in this context. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of sin, death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Isn't that how we started? This is Paul's desire for the Thessalonican church. This is Christ's desire for his church, that ye be steadfast, unmovable. Don't slow down. Don't slack up up. Don't stop preaching. Don't stop following Christ just because
because somebody you love dies. Keep moving for Christ. Don't let it knock you out. Persevere. Press on. There's a race to run. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Hallelujah. We don't, we're not to sorrow. We're not to sorrow as others sorrow who have no hope. We're not, it's not a comparison where I'm supposed to sorrow. Listen to me today. I'm telling you, this is, this is right. It's not a comparison where I'm just not supposed to sorrow like the world sorrows. It's that I'm not to sorrow. Now that grief is going to come, but what Paul is telling us here is that that death is swallowed up in victory. And when grief comes because your loved one has died, what God wants you to do is to let the grief be swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ and to press on for it won't be very long and they can't come to us, but we can go to them and it's going to be a short time before we do. (coughs) You don't have time to sit in mourning. You don't have time to sit and waste grieving over a loved one who has not disappeared, but has rather entered into immortality. Now here we could get distracted. Well, what does it mean they sleep? Are they asleep in the grave? Are they asleep in the heart of the earth? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's for the saved man. Now the others that have no hope, Jesus said the rich man died and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments. That's not some grave six feet under the ground. And he beheld Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, of course, that gets us all into paradise and everything else that we're not going to get into today. All of that was done away when Jesus Christ led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. He descended into the lower parts of the earth, the the Bible says, and he ascended. And the Bible says that many that were dead and that slept came back from the grave and entered into the city Jerusalem when Jesus rose from the dead. So that's all ended and over. And it's a useful study, but not a study for today. But that grave, the Bible says, hell hath enlarged itself and that burning fire in the heart of the earth that God himself says is hell that will someday give up its dead is a sentient immediate existence that those who deny Christ enter into those who have no hope their loved ones plunge into hell fire the moment they die a sentient death sleep is not for the lost in the biblical sense of the, of the saved who sleep. But the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present from the, with the Lord. Look at me today. I want eyes up here. If I die today, if I had a heart attack or a stroke or, or got run over by a truck or something, there's no end of things that can happen. A meteorite could come flying through the universe and, sc- and speed its way down through our atmosphere and hit me in the back of the head and I'd be gone. Bam. I would be with Christ because he's my Lord and my Savior. And God would call it sleep in the sense that my body, my physical remains would wait for resurrection. That's what the Bible teaches. That someday the dead in Christ will rise. We'll study that. It's, gonna, it's coming up. It's right in the, uh, in the context as we go forward. We have hope, I'm telling you. Whenever I die, I will be with Jesus. You don't need to sit around crying about it all day. You'll feel grief, hopefully, in a sense, because you love me. But that grief needs to be swallowed up in victory. Do you hear me today? It's not that you don't have grief. It's that your grief must be and can be and will be swallowed up in the victory of the blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ if you will let God do that. If you will let God do it. If you will receive God's grace when your loved one dies. God will give you that grace. I remember a man that I knew. I had gotten to know him and become um, fast friends with him. He was an older gentleman and he was riddled with cancer. He was having chemotherapy done all the time. um, And he had been in remission a couple times, but it had never lasted very long. And he was getting, he was fading. It was obvious that he was fading, but nothing could keep him from church or from prayer meeting. What a blessing that man was. His name was Travis Triplett. And nothing could keep him from church or from prayer meeting. 
And I remember the day that the word finally came that Travis had died. His body had succumbed to cancer. And the day that the word came, I, was, I went to my room and I shut the door and I dropped on my knees and my heart was filled with grief for the loss of a friend. But no sooner did I hit my knees that it was like I could almost, in my heart, I didn't see anything with my eyes, but in my heart, it was like I could see the gates of glory open up above. And it was like I was going up through the sky in my heart, looking at Travis Triplett, and I could see the smile on his face, and I could see the glory of heaven in his eyes. And when he got close... It was like I just had to stand and wait, and I couldn't go any closer. And I just watched him in my heart, and I'm not telling you I saw anything. I'm just telling you what it was like in my heart while I was praying. I don't even know how to explain it to you. But whenever he got up there, the, the shouts and the joy and the hallelujahs filled the sky. And it was like the light of heaven filled my heart and filled my soul. And I wept tears, but they were not tears of sorrow. They were tears of joy. And my heart was filled with joy for my brother whose mortal body had given way to immortality, whose death had been swallowed up in life. He had been made whole, made whole, made perfect, given a new glorified body. The Bible says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, because death is going to come. It's not, a, it's not a if, it's a when. When people die, you're not to sorrow if you're a Christian as others who have no hope. Let God fill your heart with joy. There will be tears, but let them be tears of joy. Let them be tears of glorious victory. Let God fill your heart with the glory of what He has done, of the healing that He has accomplished, of the perfection that your loved one has just entered into. Hallelujah. We're going to look at a couple verses and be done. John chapter 10 and verse 28 says, He that believeth in me shall never perish. Go there real quick. Let's look at it. Have a few verses in John. John 10 and verse 28. <clears throat> and I give unto them eternal life, he says, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. Do you believe that? If your loved one dies, Jesus said they would never perish. You'll be tempted by the devil. The devil will say, where's Jesus now? He said they wouldn't die. Jesus said they would never perish. He said they would never taste death. He doesn't waste words. Jesus tasted death for every man. And though it looks like death to you and I, they have just been swallowed up in victory and have a new body and a new life. And they're present with the Lord, not sitting in some grave not sitting in ashes in some urn somewhere. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. John 11 and verse 25 says, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? I believe it. You say, well, what happens? They go to sleep. Well, then why do we bury them? Because the world calls it death and their body is going to rot and it will stink because we've got to stick the body somewhere. Okay, that's, that's reality. God's going to raise the body someday. So in that sense, the body sleeps, but it will sleep on a nuclear atomic level, totally decomposed. I don't even know how God's going to do it, but that body isn't them. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and they never die. Liter Listen to me. There's nothing, an enemy greater than death. Whenever a Christian dies, they don't die. Did you know that? They don't die. A Christian will never die. 
a true believer in Jesus Christ. Instead, when it, right at the moment when they would die, God catches them up to heaven before they can even die. There, no Christian has died since Jesus Christ said these words. He said, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Let's look at one more verse here. John 14, well, a couple of verses at one more place. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Hallelujah for the preserved word of God. Perfect, immaculate, and pure, and unneeding from any scholastic and theological editors who will have their place in hell for messing with God's word. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not the way. We know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. And then Jesus said, we've got to read this verse. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Anyway, we're going to close it out there. We could just keep on reading. It'd be great. Revelation 21 deals with the new heaven and new earth. You can read that as well for comfort whenever your loved ones die. Praise God for his word. Father, we thank you for this precious promise and this precious hope and the fact that we have the grace available and the truth available so that we don't have to sorrow. It's not your will for us to sorrow. We will have sorrow, but it's your will to swallow it up in victory. And we pray that you'd help us to yield to your will and yield to your grace and to believe you, Lord, and believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen.